Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Mercy Ascot. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome to the podcast Mr. Jason Du. Jason is a New Zealand trained urologist and urologic surgeon. Jason has a special interest in urologic oncology, especially prostate, bladder, kidney and testicular cancers. Jason works at North Shore and Waitakere Hospitals as the lead robotic surgeon and helps set up the first public hospital robotic surgery in New Zealand. He also works at the Urology Institute Group in Auckland. Morena, Jason, and welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Louise. Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm very glad to be here. So today we're talking about PSAs, to screen or not to screen. We know that prostate cancer is one of the leading causes of death in men in New Zealand and Maori are twice as likely to die compared to non-Maori once diagnosed with prostate cancer. So discussing PSA today, I thought we could start with a case to talk through some learning points. So we'll follow Mr B through his journey with evolving PSAs to highlight key issues. So Mr B is a 50-year-old European man who presents to your primary care practice asking for prostate screening. He is well and has no genitourinary symptoms. He doesn't have a family history of prostate cancer. He presents now as a mate told him he needed to get things checked. So Jason, what should we be discussing with Mr. B in our first consultation? Well, first of all, I think uh, it's very important to first off congratulate him for uh, turning up to your practice uh, because I know it's pretty hard to get a otherwise well, fit and well uh, 50-year-old chap to come to a GP practice voluntarily. Secondly, I think a lot of the issues surrounding PSA testing and screening, a lot of the controversy exists primarily because in the past, perhaps 10, 15 years, with the increasing use of PSA, there has really been a lot of overdiagnosis and overtreatment and harm caused to men. However, in the last five to 10 years, there's really been quite a bit of frame shift in terms of how we diagnose prostate cancer and how we manage prostate cancer with a focus specifically on reducing harm and reducing overdiagnosis and treatment. So having congratulated him for turning up to your practice, I would then discuss with him the fact that PSA testing is very useful in terms of reducing prostate cancer mortality, and I would discuss with him the rationale behind the test in terms of as a baseline screening tool for his risk, the lifelong risk factor for, for prostate cancer, and I would go through with him the potential possibilities of a negative test and also as well as a positive test. So Jason, in this first consultation, you've mentioned PSA and screening. Is this where you would discuss also a rectal examination? I would, Louise. Uh, I think there is pretty good evidence to show that rectal examination in concurrence with a PSA blood test helps us both as a sort of risk stratification tool uh, whenever we get the opportunity. And again, obviously, we would explain to the patient what it involves and the rationale behind doing a rectal examination in terms of not just feeling for an abnormal prostate nodule, but also prostate size and texture, as that would also give us some indication into, into his uh, prostate health. 
So Mr B is not completely sure about going ahead with either a PSA or a rectal examination at this point. So you decide to give him some resources to take away. What resources do you find particularly useful to give your patients, Jason, to help them make this informed decision? From my point of view as a urologist, you know, we, we tend to see men who've already had that initial discussion with potentially elevated PSA and or abnormal rectal examination. So we're sort of beyond that first barrier. But uh, from a general practice point of view, I think, you know, the, the first thing to note is that, you know, I understand that all of us are reasonably under the pump in terms of pressure for consultation time. So I don't think the discussion and or resource need to be hugely intensive or time intensive. A good website that I would recommend would be the Coupe website, so coupe.net.nz. I think that has very relevant information surrounding PSA and prostate health. That would be somewhere to start with in terms of resources for the patient. Wonderful. Thank you. Mr. B decides to have his rectal examination, which to you feels normal. Then he waits 48 hours post to have his PSA, which returns a normal result. So what is the next step for Mr. B? I think you make a good point there in terms of the 48 hours. Um, just a brief note to say that the PSA half-life uh, is around 48 hours. So generally the advice of avoiding a test within 48 hours of ejaculation or strenuous exercise, particularly bike riding, is a good one. When we say the PSA is normal, the other thing to note is that um, I'm sure most of our listeners will know that the normal range of the PSA varies with age, and it's very helpfully uh, reported by the lab. But more importantly, the actual value of the PSA serves as a good risk stratifier. Uh, there's pretty good evidence to show that if your first ever PSA around 40 to 50 years of age is, if it is below one, then your lifetime risk of having prostate cancer is very low. Conversely, if your first ever PSA around 40 to 50 is above one, then we may look to increase the frequency of testing of the PSA. So assuming Mr. B, as you mentioned, is fit and well, asymptomatic with a normal uh, rectal examination, and if his PSA is very low, then I would reassure him to say that it appears that his prostate health is in good nick. And in the absence of risk factors, we could safely repeat that in two to three years' time. So we decided to recall Mr. B one year later. He goes off and has his PSA, and we note a 51% increase in his result. So you bring him in to discuss his results. What do we want to know at this point? A year later, his PSA has gone up a bit uh, or higher than what we would like. So that brings into the next point of a PSA kinetics or PSA velocity. Not only is the PSA value, absolute value important, as we discussed in the previous point, the rate of rise is also somewhat important. And so I would discuss with him that his PSA had increased somewhat faster than what we would like. Uh, I would once again go through his symptoms in terms of whether he's developed any urinary symptoms or history of infection around that side of things, as well as repeating his rectal examination to see how it uh, has changed potentially since last exam a year ago. Can I just pick up on one of those points, Jason? So you said the rate of rise is important or the velocity. So what is a normal rate of rise? 
we would accept a rise of less than one point per year as being satisfactory. Again, that comes back to his baseline PSA reading. So for a young male, we would accept a PSA rise of less than one point per year as satisfactory. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that. So Mr. B says to you over the last year, he's noticed that he is going to the toilet more frequently. He's noticed some hesitancy when he starts to urinate, but he isn't getting up at night. So uh, you mentioned repeating the rectal examination. So just tell us what you would do with Mr. B now. So it appears that he has developed some mild lower urinary tract symptoms. First off, I would reassure Mr. B that it is likely his urinary symptoms are a result of early benign prostatic hyperplasia or BPH as opposed to prostate cancer. A lot of men come to us with the initial onset of of urinary symptoms and having heard a lot about prostate cancer in the media or through their friends, and they often correlate the two. Whereas, as we know, most men will have some degree of BPH, which is usually the cause of their lower urinary tract symptoms. So I'd start there as the first sort of point of, of clarification. Secondly, it's important to clarify with Mr. B how bothered he is with his lower urinary tract symptoms, as if he remains mildly or non-bothered, there's no really acute uh, indication to initiate any treatment. Conversely, if he is quite bothered with his lower urinary tract symptoms, usually the first port of call there would be starting a low-dose alpha blocker after discussing the side effects, uh, primarily postural hypotension. So as far as repeating the rectal examination, you as the primary care provider decided to repeat this because the symptoms had changed, and you did note a firm small mass in his lower right pole. So you feel that you need to refer to urology. So how quickly, given that we've got a PSA rise and then a change in the prostate, would he need to be seen? Good point that you've made there, Louise, around an abnormal rectal examination. So at any point in time, if you as a general practitioner are worried about an abnormal rectal examination, irrespective of what the PSA is, he should be referred through for assessment. Typically, that would be triaged as a P2, so see within six to eight weeks through the public sector. And I would explain to Mr. B that it appears that uh, we have felt a small lump in his prostate. It is not certain uh, what this represents. We're not telling him that he has got prostate cancer, simply saying to him that his prostate feels slightly abnormal uh, and not as smooth as we would like. So we would recommend him being assessed by a urologist. So at this point, we have referred him off to see the urologist. Mr. B sees the urologist in his flow urometry. What happens now, Jason? So typically, any man who's referred through with uh, lower urinary tract symptoms uh, would undertake a, a flow test, which involves Mr. B filling up his bladder prior to the appointment, voiding into a specialized machine to determine the volume he voided and at what speed. We would also monitor his post-void residual volume at the clinic. This gives us a baseline sort of indication in terms of the degree of impact his urinary symptoms have and can also help us guide treatment. 
The other issue with Mr. B, of course, is his abnormal rectal examination. Traditionally, we would repeat the rectal examination. And if it indeed feels abnormal, Mr. B would be committed to having a transrectal ultrasound-guided biopsy of the prostate, which sounds very invasive and is somewhat invasive and, and quite unpleasant for some men. But as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, um, there's been a frame shift in how we manage uh, men referred with elevated PSA and or abnormal rectal examination. Taking Mr. B, for example, if his rectal exam is somewhat equivocal uh, with his rising PSA, the first investigation we would commit him to would not be a transrectal biopsy uh, in 2022, but rather we would arrange for him a multi-parametric MRI scan of the prostate. Now, that's a, a non-invasive radiological imaging without radiation, so no harm is done for Mr. B from that point of view. We have pretty good evidence to show us that the MRI scan of the prostate improves detection of what we call clinically significant prostate cancer and also helps us reduce unnecessary prostate biopsies. What I mean by that is there's pretty good evidence to show that if a man has a normal MRI scan of his prostate, we can pretty sure be confident that you know 85-90% of these men do not have anything clinically significant. Uh, conversely, if the MRI scan shows a suspicious area, there is a specialized scoring uh, system for MRI scan of the prostate, which I won't go into in too much detail. But if it's determined that Mr. B has a suspicious lesion within his prostate, then he would then go on to have a targeted biopsy of the prostate, which in this day and age is largely done transperineally as opposed to transrectally, which again reduces the risk of infection for Mr. B. It's determined that he does have prostate cancer. So what are his options for treatment? So assuming that we have done an MRI scan and it is shown that he does have a suspicious area, uh, usually we would discuss with Mr. B at this point that the clinical parameters so far, we've done a rectal exam, which is abnormal. We've done an MRI scan, which uh, has shown a suspicious area. Again, it's not confirmed he has prostate cancer at this point in time until he has a prostate biopsy. And so as I mentioned in the last point, we are moving away from transrectal biopsies, which carry a higher infection risk to a transperineal approach, which is far safer. The sepsis rate is well below 0.5% from large studies. Uh, and once we've done the transperineal biopsy, we sit down with Mr. B and review the histology. It is important for Mr. B to, to understand that we're trying to answer two questions here from a biopsy point of view. The first question is obviously whether he has prostate cancer, yes or no. The second question, which is also very important, is the grade of his cancer. Uh, I always tell my patients that prostate cancer ranges from low all the way through to high grade, and how they behave and how we manage them is very different. I use the analogy of kittens versus tigers, so kittens being the low-grade prostate cancer, 
and tigers being the high-grade prostate cancer behaves very differently and how we manage them is very different. So we would sit down with Mr. B with his biopsy results and depending on whether he has low versus high-grade prostate cancer, the treatment options are very different. As I was saying at the start of the podcast, we are moving away from over-treatment of prostate cancer now. For example, if Mr. B only has a low-grade prostate cancer, uh, the primary treatment option for him would in fact be active surveillance, i.e. close monitoring. Uh, we wouldn't actually be recommending any radical treatments such as surgery uh, or radiotherapy. Just to take a step back, when we talk about low-grade prostate cancer, most of you will be familiar with the Gleason grading system, which ranges from 6 all the way through to 10. And trying to explain to patients a Gleason 6 out of 10 prostate cancer equates to low-risk disease is somewhat perplexing. There is a new grading system simply from 1 to 5, and that's called the ISUP, or International Society of Uropathology. So ISUP grading system from 1 to 5. ISUP grade 1 is low risk. Grade 2 and 3 are intermediate risk. And grades four and five are high risk, which is somewhat easier to understand. So translating back to Gleason, so ISUP grade one, ISUP grade one would equate to a Gleason six prostate cancer, which would be defined as low risk, assuming the PSA is below 10. Now, if Mr. B has low risk prostate cancer, we would sit down with him and reassure him that whilst we have detected prostate cancer, this is one of a very low risk nature, and we can safely monitor this with the process of active surveillance, which involves regular PSA testing, regular rectal examination, and perhaps a repeat MRI some point down the line, and only if required, potentially a repeat biopsy. We know the majority of men on active surveillance actually do not progress. In fact, about 70 to 80% of men who are on active surveillance do not require treatment in the long term. And so this may be the cancer that he dies with rather than from, which is also commonly uh, heard and talked about. Conversely, if we've detected intermediate or high-risk prostate cancer for Mr. B, then we would go on to discuss the fact that this is now a cancer that requires treatment, and we would arrange appropriate staging investigations, followed by a discussion around his treatment options, which at present are two, either surgery, so removal of the prostate, or he could have radiotherapy to the prostate, potentially combined with a hormone treatment. So you mentioned that you're moving to transperineal biopsy over a transrectal. Are there any people who can't have a transperineal biopsy? That is an option for everyone. Uh, however, depending on where you live, it's not widely available throughout. It's available in most centres in New Zealand, but not all. So some centres, as far as I'm aware, are still performing transrectal ultrasound-guided prostate biopsy. Okay, thank you for that. 
And then you said if someone has low-grade cancer, you're doing regular PSAs and rectal examinations. What is regular? Fantastic question. So we're talking about active surveillance process Mm -hmm. for a low-risk prostate cancer patient. There are very clear guidelines that we follow here at North Shore, Waitematā, which is three monthly PSAs and six monthly reviews in clinic, assuming the PSA is satisfactory. And when reviewed, uh, we would perform a rectal examination. Um, So three monthly PSAs indefinitely. Now, if the PSA is rising or if there's been a change in the rectal exam findings or symptoms, that would indicate to us that potentially something is changing. The first port of call often is to repeat imaging, i.e. his MRI scan, potentially look at repeating a biopsy uh, to determine if his low-risk prostate cancer has now progressed to intermediate or higher grade. In other words, has the kitten started growing or not? And that's a process that we guide men through. So once they've been diagnosed, they would be in our system and we would closely monitor them through. And as I said, the majority of men in the active surveillance cohort do not progress. And the next point is, well, how long do we monitor them for? So that comes back to how fit and well the patient is. Generally speaking, we would monitor men up until the age of between 70 to 75. The theory behind that is prostate cancer treatment is really uh, only useful uh, and improves survival for men with a 10 to 15 year life expectancy. So there's no chronological age cutoff, but more so a physiological age uh, and life expectancy is what we use. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying those things. So we've talked about low and intermediate grade. Tell us about high grade. If a patient has intermediate or high risk prostate cancer, generally I would tell the patient that this is not something that we would recommend a safe monitoring for long periods because we know that intermediate and higher grade prostate cancers do grow and progress. Uh, However, the rate of growth of prostate cancer in general is a lot slower uh, when you compare it to other cancers, such as, for example, pancreatic or brain. And so that's often a discussion I have with men. Once they hear the word cancer, sort of everything goes out out, you know, the back mm-hmm. of their head. And we often bring them back in, in a few weeks' time and have a second discussion with them just so that they can appreciate and understand all the options involved. And one of the first things I say to them is, you know, prostate cancer by and large is a slow growing cancer. So we do have time on our hands to decide on treatment. If a man has high risk prostate cancer, so grade four or five in the ISUP grading system or Gleason 8, 9 or 10, or if their PSA is over 20, then the first port of call would be a staging scan provided they're fit for treatment. And we've moved away from conventional imaging such as CT scan or bone scan to now what we call a PSMA PET scan. So PSMA is a radiological ligand which binds to any PSA secreting cell. And it's being shown that this PET scan is much more accurate compared to CT and bone scans. So if a patient is is fit for uh, radical treatment, then uh, he would be counseled towards having a PET scan as a staging 
to rule out metastatic disease. In general terms, men with intermediate risk prostate cancer do not require any routine staging because you'll remember they would have had an MRI scan before their biopsy, which acts somewhat as local staging in terms of looking at the prostate and the surrounding lymph nodes. So they would have had that already even before their biopsy. Fantastic. Going back to Mr. B, he has high-grade cancer and we discuss his options and he decides that he wants surgery. So tell us about the surgical options for him here. So often when we see patients with high-risk prostate cancer, as part of the counselling process, apart from the staging scans that we've um, mentioned, we also discuss with him the ability and recommend that he has an appointment to discuss primary radiotherapy as the treatment option with a radiation oncologist, because of course we don't perform radiotherapy. And so we would have that uh, recommendation for him to meet with a radiation oncologist in order to form a sort of fully informed decision-making process. If he has decided on surgery uh, for his prostate cancer, we would then sit down with him and discuss the approaches for surgery. Traditionally, surgery is performed in an open method, and it is still done at various centres across New Zealand. However, when you look at internationally, uh, US, UK, Australia, uh, you'll see that 90% of prostate removal uh, or prostatectomy is done minimally invasively uh, with the robotic platform. So we now have the ability to do that at North Shore Hospital or Waitamata as the first public hospital uh, in New Zealand to offer this. It has been widely available in the private sector in New Zealand uh, at Auckland, Tauranga, Wellington and Christchurch uh, for the past few years already. The benefits of a minimally invasive approach with the robot are that the patients have less pain, less bleeding, quicker recovery, earlier return to work, earlier functional uh, return, improved functional outcomes, whilst their cancer results are equivalent with the traditional open method. And we would discuss that with Mr. B and run through specifically on risks with surgery. The two main risks I discuss with all my patients, the first being urinary incontinence or, or leakage. Now, we would warn Mr. B that uh, surgery is roughly about two to three hours in duration, and he'd be expected to be in hospital one or two nights we aim to remove his prostate and seminal vesicles and rejoin his bladder to his urethra. I often have a model that, that I would show the patient uh, as I think that you know, makes the explanation much clearer. And we place a catheter into the bladder after the surgery, uh, which is removed uh, usually a week later. A following catheter removal, uh, I tell my patients that uh, most men will experience a degree of urine leakage, particularly with coughing or sneezing or uh, straining. It's important for them to uh, learn about pelvic floor exercises beforehand so they can practice those before and after surgery. Generally, the leakage improves week by week, 
such that 90 to 95% of men don't have any long-term leakage, you know, beyond a year after surgery. We mentioned one year because men take their time in terms of recovery. Some men leak for three to six weeks. Some men leak for three to six months. It's quite hard to predict how long each patient will leak for, but to reassure them that leakage initially is normal, but long-term, it's pretty uncommon for them to have long-term leakage. So that's the first major risk of surgery. The second being losing natural erectile function. And at this point, I would also go over with Mr. B uh, what his pre-existing erectile function is, as that is, I guess, the main determinant of uh, his erectile function recovery post-surgery. I would explain to him that whilst we're talking losing natural erectile function, it doesn't mean that he'll never be able to have or generate an erection. And we have several other assisted options to help him with that following surgery should it be required. So Jason, Mr. B is quite keen to explore the robotic technique. When we are looking to refer for surgery with robotics, how do we choose a surgeon for our patient? I think that's a fantastic question that um, you bring up, Louise. I think to take a step back, I think the not to say that the open traditional approach is a bad one. It's not that at all. The open approach, uh, the open radical prostatectomy is still a very good operation uh, when performed by an experienced surgeon. And in fact, it is still performed widely across many centers in New Zealand, uh, particularly in, in where the access to the robot is difficult, as you know, a lot of men would prefer to have their surgery closer to home and family, support, friends, rather than traveling just to have a robotic approach. So my first answer to that question would be that it's important to choose a surgeon who is well experienced, whether it be the open approach or the robotic approach. Then the question is, how do you define somebody who's experienced and how do you select somebody who's experienced? The first thing is you look at whether or not they're, they're well trained. For example, have they had specific fellowships, subspecialized training? in this. But secondly, it's not just about the surgeon, uh, him or herself. It's also about the team that's involved. As I mentioned previously, I think pelvic floor physiotherapy is very important. And so, for example, in, in, at the Urology Institute, where I work in the private sector, and also in Te Whatamata, Waitemata, we work closely with pelvic floor physiotherapists, as well as nurse specialists who can provide that additional education component for Mr. B in terms of catheter cares, you know, what does the urinary catheter look like? Even though he would have some of that education whilst an inpatient, I think just having that education beforehand helps to relieve some of the anxiety there. The next point is, you know, uh, we talk about urine leakage. What does that look like? How to use pads? Are there pads for men? Uh, you know, where to get them, how to use them? Uh, and the third thing that we mentioned also briefly is in terms of erectile functional recovery. Uh, what does that look like? You know, what are the agents out there to support men and their partners in terms of guiding them through erectile functional recovery as they recover from their surgical journey? So the team is also extremely important. The third aspect of selecting 
a, a surgeon to perform the surgery is someone that you can trust and can communicate with. Right? You need to be able to understand you know, the information that's given to you and develop a good rapport with your surgeon. So I think those three are the, are the key points there. Someone who's well-trained, who has a great team behind them, and someone that uh, you feel you can have a good rapport and connection with. Excellent points. Thank you for that. So Mr. B has had his robotic surgery, and this has been uneventful with full resection of his prostate. You are his primary care provider and receive a letter from the urologist with a follow-up plan, which includes PSA testing. So PSA here is used in quite a different way with different reference levels, I understand. So I wonder if we can discuss this for a moment. Absolutely. So following surgical removal of the prostate, what we should be aiming to see is an undetectable PSA. Various uh, labs report this differently. Uh, in the Auckland region, the lab tests company reports it as less than 0.05 as being undetectable. Now, typically, uh, we would arrange for this to be checked at six weeks following surgery, gives the PSA plenty of time, plenty of half-lives to wash out. At this point, we would also sit down with Mr. B following his surgery to explore how his recovery is coming along and also discuss the pathology results because that would guide the frequency of how the PSA is checked along with what the actual first reading is at six weeks post-surgery. For example, if his final pathology shows that the disease is organ-confined and that the margins are clear, along with his first post-operative PSA being undetectable, that gives him a really, really good prognosis in terms of cure, well over 90 95%. And in which case, we would only need to repeat his PSA six monthly for the first year. And if they're all undetectable, then we can go out to yearly thereafter indefinitely. Conversely, if Mr. B has somewhat of a higher risk final pathology, for example, if it's extracapsular or if the margins are positive, uh, then we would recommend three monthly PSA checks in the first year, and then guided by what levels they are moving out to increasing duration thereafter. Thirdly, I guess if the question of what happens when the PSA is not undetectable. So following surgery uh, at the six-week mark, if there are still traces of PSA remaining, often we would repeat that test again in three months, depending on the final pathology, of course. But if the PSA shows a slow rise, for example, 0.1 and then 0.2, 0.3, that often signifies a biochemical recurrence of the cancer somewhere. And if there is high-risk features on the pathology, for example, the cancer being extracapsular, or if there's margin positivity, then we may look at discussing with Mr. B the option of additional radiotherapy to the prostate bed and or the pelvis, um, depending on his individual recovery and clinical parameters. Thank you, Jason. Uh, your take on messages for our listeners, please. The first point I like to mention about PSA testing is that 
PSA screening does reduce prostate cancer mortality. Uh, with increasing follow-up from various studies, we now know that the number needed to, to screen to save a life is now around about 600, which is in par, on par with things like mammography. So PSA screening does reduce prostate cancer mortality. The second point is having a discussion with your patient about PSA testing and rectal examination, not even, even necessarily as a routine screening process, but even as a, a single test allows for risk stratification for your patient. Thirdly, uh, I mentioned this at the start, there's been a frame shift in how we approach men with an elevator PSA. We now use multi-parametric MRI scan rather than straight to prostate biopsy with the aim of improving detection and reducing unnecessary harm. Fourthly, the management of prostate cancer has also changed over the past decade with now a focus on reducing harm and reducing overdiagnosis. And we mentioned with Mr. B, active surveillance is now the preferred uh, method for low-risk prostate cancer. And finally, treatment for intermediate or high-risk prostate cancer is very successful now with reducing morbidity and as modalities, whether it be surgery or radiotherapy, improve over time. Fantastic. Thank you, Jason, for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Kia ora. Thank you, Louise. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please log them on your CPD platform. You'll find a list of resources used in making this podcast on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.